welcome to Fire Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property, presented by the Indiana University Power School of Law's Intellectual Property Theory Journal. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm a 2L at the school and originally from Michigan, and I'm very interested in patent prosecution, and I'm excited to be here today. My name is Alex Mischke. I'm also a second-year student here. I'm from Northwest Indiana, and I'm interested also in patent prosecution. My name is Megan Wheeler. I'm also a 2L. I am from Los Angeles, California, and I'm interested in soft IP. My name is David Levy. I'm a 2L as well. I'm from Atlanta, and I'm interested in pretty much all aspects of patent law. Uh, on today's episode, we'll be discussing two main topics. Uh, first, the recent survival of the North Carolina law against patent trolls. And second, we'll be discussing whether jurists are able to reasonably make certain decisions regarding facts in intellectual property cases. Starting off with the North Carolina case, in a recent decision, a federal judge shot down a constitutional challenge to a state law that criminalizes patent licensing demand letters sent in bad faith. The two parties of the case are NAPCO, or Binders.com, and Landmark Technology A, LLC. As a bit of introduction, a patent troll is usually uh, an organization or entity that amasses patents or intellectual property rights with the intent to enforce them against others beyond the scope of what their patents normally offer. Most of these entities, at least to my understanding, sit on the patents and wait for somebody to come along and then will send them uh, a fairly threatening legal demand with the hope of being able to make money off of them. Uh, and now that we've introduced what a troll is, we'll get a little bit more, or a patent troll, we'll get a little bit more into the facts of the case. So again, this is in the Middle District of North Carolina, and Technology A, LLC, is the patent troll in the case, uh, and they're being sued by Binders.com, uh, whose owner is NAPCO, uh, over... Um, they just call it the 508 patent, but I, I imagine it's um, some sort of website technology with the shopping cart feature. And bringing to some of the challenges, the law or the patent troll law at hand was challenged under two constitutional grounds, that being equal protection and free speech. On the free speech challenge, the judge wrote that the law permissibly regulates only bad faith statements in letters, which is what occurred in this case, and not all assertions of patent infringement. And since limits on fraudulent statements have been found to be constitutional, the North Carolina Act adheres to First Amendment precedent, and that's the strike down on free speech, but on the equal protection ground. Yeah, so um, an equal protection challenge is based on the idea of a suspect classification. So currently race, religion, and national origin are seen um, by the Supreme Court as suspect classifications. Gender is seen as a quasi-suspect classification. But this law targets companies that do not have cash or other assets, which, as you, if you think about it, a company without any cash and with any assets is pretty rare and is probably not super productive. And so, as such, under current 14th Amendment case law, a non-practicing entity that doesn't have cash or other assets does not qualify under any of the suspect classifications. So any equal protection challenge would fall short. Also something that I've noticed, if you just think about um, a lot of the things that different bodies of law try to do, antitrust law, patent law, um, they try to encourage competition 
um, and either protect consumers or protect other businesses. And if you think about a company who does nothing with an asset like a patent and just sits on it waiting for someone else to potentially innovate and infringe on it, that's not really in anyone's best interest other than the one party that's sitting on this intellectual property. So that was just something that I thought was interesting from some recent antitrust law that I've been reading. It just kind of aligns with the, the goal of several different bodies of law. On that note, one, one of the things the article mentions, a whole bunch of other states in addition to North Carolina have passed patent troll statutes. And the article outlines some general factors that are included in those statutes, and just to list some of them off, or all these factors give an indication of bad faith, which is also associated with patent trolls. And some of those factors are uh, knowledge that the claims are meritless, uh, a demand of payment in an unreasonably short time, uh, or sending identical demands to multiple recipients without addressing differences between them. Uh, That last factor in particular was highlighted in this case, landmark alleged infringement from binders, the letter that they served them was very similar to a letter, or identical to a letter they had served to many other organizations uh, seeking the same amount of money. Taking this back for a second and mentioning the antitrust and the behavior of sitting on patents without doing anything, uh, Megan and I earlier were discussing uh, whether we thought it would be a good idea to uh, include other factors, and we discussed doing nothing and thought... uh, was a bit of gray area and that perhaps that factor wouldn't be a great addition because with the grant of a patent, much like a property right, you do have the right to do nothing with your property and your patents as well. Uh, But are there any other factors that you think would be helpful to add into potential other patent troll statutes or even is states passing legislation like this the right approach? Should we potentially consider federal intervention, or what are your thoughts? I think this is a great approach. Um, it's I, I can't, off the top of my head, think of any other factors that specifically need to be included um, for a, a legal approach like this to be successful, but I do think it's a massive problem. Um, even just over the, my summer work, so much of my time was dedicated to troll cases, and I mean, I'm like the law firm that I was working for was being paid for that, but the courts the courts are being paid out of taxpayer dollars, and so that patent is a is a bargain with the public, right? Um, so I think that if you are doing nothing with it and you're costing the public, like you're doing nothing with it for, to to benefit the public, and all you're doing is just sitting on it, and then making money off of a a system that costs the taxpayers money. I think that in the same way, when you read about why the robber barons' trusts had to be busted, I think in the same way, you can just be like, yeah, this is something that that I can get behind because I don't want to just pay for legislation out of a business model where you're just collecting intellectual property on the hope that someone who's trying to do something productive accidentally trips over it. Like, that's just a little bit... That's, it's not something I'm sympathetic to, and I think that they do a great job of isolating some of the... I mean, you have to be careful. You don't want to... Like, patents are are to protect people and protect inventors, so you don't want to decrease the value of a patent. But at the same time, I think that this is something that definitely needs to be addressed, and the factors that they put forward are, off the top of my head, seem to be pretty effective. Yeah, they seem to distinguish pretty well between somebody that's 
simply holding on to a property right versus somebody who's using that property right to sort of antagonize or coerce other businesses when they're trying to develop products that would also benefit society. Um, I think the the factors that they include do a good job of uh, distinguishing those things. In terms of adding to it, I, I, I don't see any sort of indication of coercive behavior, which in this case, it does seem it does seem like Landmark was a little bit coercive in that they set a 30-day deadline to pay $65,000, which would be revoked if litigation were to ensue. Like To me, that seemed like strong-arming a smaller business. And I think that there's a lot of that behavior that goes on. So kind of in addition to what David was saying, I think the states are taking a good approach uh, with the patent troll statutes. Some of the factors that we talked about for the bad faith assertion are things that juries are able to decide, such as an uncertain amount of time or um, knowledge about something being meritless or the deceptive nature of the assertion. But other aspects of patents themselves and what is involved in actually getting a patent is not necessarily something as simple or as usually more complex than those topics. And it's an interesting consideration about whether the juries are capable of making those determinations that are related to patent eligibility. A recent case from 2018 suggests that deciding some of these patent eligibility criteria may be within the purview of a jury if they're factual questions. As far as patent eligibility goes, there are four requirements, and that's statutory eligibility, novelty, utility, and non-obviousness. There is some overlap between them, but they are all distinct. Often, because of the complex nature of patents, those are very technical and they're difficult for even judges who have had case after case deciding about different technologies, whether or not they can come to the correct conclusion. And in fact, we even have a specialized court, the Federal Circuit, that was partially designed so that we would have judges who were able to specialize and develop those kind of skills that are needed to get to the correct answers. And even still, with that, there are a high rate of appeals to the Federal Circuit, and many of those end up in reversals. And so if Federal Circuit judges are struggling to really interpret things at a level that doesn't need to be appealed or doesn't end up in a reversal, or even the district courts who are not specialized, I think that it is even more difficult for juries to try and decide those cases. Even in less complex cases, evidence law, a lot of the policy behind that involves making sure that juries are able to make the decision that seems best and most equal without sidetracking them and causing them to look at things or in a way that's undesirable or to put too much stress into the factor that they're weighing. And because of that, it seems that maybe certain aspects of patent eligibility just should be outside of juries' consideration. Markman case discusses specifically patent claim construction and they concluded that certain words, when we're trying to figure out what those words mean in the terms of that specific patent, that that should be left to judges because they're better suited than juries. They've got more of the experience and I think that that is a big factor in, in that decision and it's possible that that could continue into other aspects of patent eligibility as well. I guess as a general question, are there any benefits of letting juries 
have a bigger hand in these decisions. I do think that after working in the field, even though these judges develop specialized skills and interpretation skills, it's possible that they're used to looking at cases and terms a certain way that juries, without that intense experience, may look at a different way. And though the judges may be right, it's also possible that the juries may be right. And I think there is value in hearing what they have to say, even if the judge is the one who, at the end, makes a decision about whether or not the fact that the juries are considering is going to be accepted, or if the judge is going to place their determination and decision above the juries. I think, personally, I'm of the opinion that uh, these decisions are perhaps better served uh, with the judge. To play devil's, devil's advocate, uh, something that I thought of while you were talking about this, letting juries have a bigger hand in deciding some of these infringement cases uh, could potentially make the patent system more accessible to the public. I know, David, earlier you talked about kind of the bargain where, as an inventor, you're giving your disclosure to the general public in return for property rights in that invention that you can make and use and sell. And if juries have a larger role in interpreting what those mean and putting everything more in their hands, uh, it could make patents and patent law more accessible to everybody, which would then in turn perhaps increase the interest in invention. But I think in the real world, that's perhaps uh, too gilded of a view, <laughs> especially in the context of evidence and all these other areas of law where juries are looked at uh, in a way where you're trying to make everything very digestible for them. And perhaps this is too big of a step to let them play a bigger role in deciding infringement of patents and things like that. But at least in an interesting way, there could be some positive outcome that was ever passed into legislation. I think one other issue with, one other potential issue with having juries decide these kind of facts is simply that patent law litigation is already so expensive, and that's pretty much just to instruct the facts to the court, and to have more people having to learn those facts seems like it could just continue the costs and continue the time to litigate these issues that may need to be expedient because typically they're injunction suits to prevent somebody from using their property. And so I think time is of the essence in these cases and there may be no need to add costs to these types of cases. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. The way I think about it is well, something that the, the Markman case highlights is the idea that a judge brings a little bit more consistency to the process. And I think when you, when you view a patent trial through the eyes of an, one of ordinary skill in the art, when you think about that, the, the likelihood, the, the quality, if you will, of, of being skilled in the art, if you think about a judge that does this all the time, maybe you could hope for between a four and a six on a scale of one to ten. A really good jury could probably be an eight or a nine, but a jury could also be a one or a two. And these are way too expensive of propositions for 
the the companies with something at stake to trust that to the potential of a one or a two. Whereas with a select amount of judges, such as what you have on the federal circuit, you can consistently get your four to six. And I that's something that really res, re, resonated with me in the Markman opinion was that idea of consistency um, because of the way juries are picked and especially the fact that the juries are not picked from pools of technical people. So they're really not a jury of the peers of the inventor because, I mean, when you when you get into the technical arts, no one's a peer of anyone unless you're unless you're trained in that specific art. And that's the way I think about it. I think consistency plays a, a pretty big part in why I think that, it, that the judges are best suited for those decisions. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you for tuning in and joining us in this episode of Fire a Genius. Uh, feel free to follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R Mauer I-P-T-H, where you can always reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening in and we hope you're able to tune in again next week.